when uh, we came up with this theme of revive, uh, a certain story came to mind for me, and I've shared the story a few different times, especially with our youth group and young adults group, so they may have heard it, but you may have not, and so I want you to hear about this story. But Tuesday, February 3rd, 1970, began as an ordinary morning for the students of Asbury Methodist College, but the events of the following few days would trigger a chain of events that affected the body of Christ for decades to come. Now, they were having a normal chapel service that day, but there was something different going on, it seemed like. God's presence seemed abundantly evident. It was palpable in the room. They began by having an open mic testimony share time. And you know those open mic share times. It can always be a little dangerous. You never know what people might say, right? But the first few people that came forward began sharing about what God was doing in their heart. They began confessing and repenting of sin publicly in front of hundreds of people. They were being very authentic and real. And this is what happened, wrote one witness. A few minutes ago, there came a spontaneous move of the Holy Spirit. I have never witnessed such a mighty outpouring of God upon his people. The scene is unbelievable. Now get this, for the next 185 hours... There was a continuous unbroken stream of students and later faculty and staff stepping up to the microphone to confess and publicly repent of sin and to tell the change God was making in their heart. 185 hours. You know how long it is? That's over a week long. This was straight morning, noon, and night. It didn't stop. So by the second day, media coverage from different places in the state had heard about this. What's going on at Asbury? And people started showing up, doing interviews with people, filming there. By the third day, they had gained nationwide attention, and classes were completely canceled. I bet a lot of students were excited about that. By the end of the week, they had invitations coming in from all over the United States and even Latin America, inviting students to go to different places to share their experiences, what had happened there at Asbury. And then because of that, other revivals started popping up as a result of what was happening there. Dennis Kinlaw, the Asbury College president, started that long ago week as a doubter of the revival, but ended as a believer in the revival's power and truth. He said this, there was this sense of the divine presence that one doesn't have often in this life, he said. And when you do have it, you never quite get over it. You know, you know, you know it in your bone marrow. Now, the other things that were said about this revival that took place were was a surprising order of worship. Now, none of this was planned out, but obviously the Holy Spirit was working in in the details. And so there was orderliness even in the midst of that. And it was also later found out that there were many students that had been praying for this to happen, and God had finally answered those prayers. Now, that was 1970, over 50 years ago. Now, when you say 1970, you don't think it's that long ago, but... (laughs) It's over 50 years. It makes some of us feel old in this room, I'm sure. (laughs) But you think about how much has changed in our world since 1970 and now 2022, and you might ask that question, well, is something like that even possible today? Of all the different words that we could use to describe our culture today, unfortunately, one of the ones that describes our culture is this, distracted. We're very distracted. Are we too distracted for revival? Would we actually want it if God was offering it to us? Because revival, it 
involves change. It can be hard. It involves confession and repentance and a new path moving forward. Now, that word revive, what does that mean exactly? Revive means to restore to life, give new strength to. And as we just shared about a revival, what is that? Well, a revival is a community of faith returning to their devotion to God. And often that is through prayer and repentance. And what if that spreads to the culture around? Well, that could be considered perhaps an awakening. Awakening is when a revival of the church spreads to the wider society. We've heard about this happening, right? Think about the Great Awakening, the 1730s to the 1750s. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, they spearheaded that movement. And it was this move from religious rituals to repentance and change from the inside out. And the gospel was spreading all over society. And revival isn't something that just has taken place a few hundred, last few hundred years. This is something God has been doing all throughout history, reviving his people at different times and different places. We see this all over the Old Testament as well with the children of Israel. Think about Moses when they were in the wilderness. God told them to build the tabernacle. And they built that in the wilderness. And after that, God's glory rested there and God's glory was revealed. And perhaps revival took place. David, when they were finally in Jerusalem, when the Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem, celebration and revival took place as as a result. Solomon, his son, built the temple. After that, there was celebration and revival taking place. Josiah, that young king, right? Became king at eight years old. There were so many wicked kings before him. But he rediscovered the book of the law and the temple. And it was read and adhered to and revival took place among God's people. Think about after the Babylonian exile, Ezra and Nehemiah coming back, rebuilding the temple and the wall. It says specifically, there was confession, there was weeping, there was celebration, and there was revival. Now, after that, we have this 400 years of silence. We don't really know what was going on or what exactly God was doing. But then Jesus, Jesus arrived and revived God's people and breathed new life into them. Not only by fulfilling the law, but making a way of salvation for the forgiveness of sins once and for all, bridging that gap between God and man. So then after Jesus, he leaves all of this in the hands of his 12 disciples. And then we have the miracle of the early church. We have a revival of God's people take place. Now, here's the thing. We're going to be talking about the early church today. We can't recreate the early church right? Because of a different time period and cultural context and all of that. But there are some things that are obviously missing in our churches today. Would you agree? Right. So you might be asking, did we just finish a series on the book of Acts? We've been in there a couple of years. Well, we're coming back to it, but it has been a couple of years since we've been in Acts chapters one and two because it went on for a while. But this also deals with this subject of revival. So in Acts 1 and 2, we have Jesus leaving everything in the hands of the disciples. Jesus calls them to the Great Commission. Jesus ascends. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. And so they are there on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and rests on all of them. They begin speaking in different languages that they had never had before. And the God's Spirit was palpable in the room. And God is working and moving And it just so happens that there were people from all over the world there in Jerusalem at that time. So we're going to start in Acts 2, 5 through 11, if you want to turn there. And then we'll get started in this passage. 
Now, verse 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in their own tongue the mighty works of God. What an amazing experience that must have been. And all this is going on and then Peter stands up and gives this rousing sermon. And Peter, the very Peter who had just denied Jesus a few weeks before and now is standing up before thousands of people and is going to give this sermon. And many come to faith, right? It goes from 120 believers to over 3,000 in one day. So in Acts 2, 41 through 47, we see this example here. And it's an example for us even 2,000 years later, we can learn a lot from today. So this is what we're going to focus on. So verse 41 says this. So those who had received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And this is what they did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Man, this has always been one of my favorite passages in scripture. It's incredible to see what God was doing there in those early believers. Now it says they were devoted to the apostles teaching. They were persistent in that. They were persevering in that. This was a daily, weekly occurrence. This was happening all the time. So what we're going to do today, we're actually going to look at a little bit of early application for all of us today, because I think we can learn a lot just from this one verse. So we must in turn be devoted to these things, I believe. So number one, we must be devoted to authorities teaching in our lives. So everyone here in some way is under someone's authority, whether you have a boss at work or you're a student and you're, you have parents and Even those in this room who are your own boss, if you're a member here, you put yourself under the leadership of the church. And all of us ultimately are under God's authority, right? But here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Are you a teachable person? Can you learn from those that have gone before you? Can you glean wisdom from people? When you go to seek counsel for something, can you put that into practice? But we must be devoted to this, the authorities teaching in our lives that helps us to learn and to grow and to be who God wants us to be. So that's number one. Number two, we must be devoted to fellowship. Now, fellowship is a very Christian word, but we see it here in scripture. But this isn't just a group of people hanging out like on a team or a club or a society, those types of things. This is very intimate and godly. It comes from the Greek word koinonia. It's genuine, godly community. It's people who look out for each other. They take care of each other. They encourage each other. But they also call each other out on things as well. So it's a different kind of community that we have, as we can see in these verses. And so a couple examples that come up to mind for me is uh, in college. I went to a Christian college, lived in a dorm. I don't know how many of you went away to college and lived in a dorm room. 
But you have this different kind of community there when you live around people, right? Especially if you're around believers. And I remember just the closeness that you have those people eating together and hanging out, encouraging each other. I was a part of um, a camp called Summit, which uh, I was a counselor at. We're sending students there this summer. It's an amazing camp. But there had some of the the sharpest and the brightest and the the most strong Christian believers uh, that I've ever been around. And we would work with these younger students and help them to grow in their faith and and be counselors for them. But then at the end of the day, we would get together and encourage each other, lift each other up. It was an amazing experience doing that each summer. But that's some of the most encouraged men I've ever received in all my life there working at Summit. I think about missions trips. If you've been on a missions trip before, you can travel to the other side of the world and meet people you have never met. You might not even speak their language but you have a special bond with them. You have Jesus Christ. So your brothers and sisters in Christ, you can go somewhere and become best friends with someone in literally a day or a week's time because of what unifies you in Christ Jesus. You might not speak the language. You may not know what they're saying in the services or singing in the songs, but there's a special bond that you can have. And I love seeing that when our students can experience that on our mission trip this summer. And we've gone to other places and experienced that as well. So number three, we must also be devoted to the breaking of bread, eating, doing life together. It's not just coming together on the Sabbath, coming together on Sundays for us and, and being here. That's, that's one thing, and it's great that we're here and doing that. But we should all also be finding ways and opportunities to get together throughout the week and do life together and have meals together. I don't know if you enjoy meals together with your family. You sit down as a family and have that meal and how awesome and how good that can be. But we should try to invite others in to be experience that as well. And I think that is good for the body of Christ. And number four, it must be devoted to prayer. Prayer, and that was what people were praying. And God used that to bring about revival. Prayer is that intimacy with God. It's that relationship with God. We must be devoted to that. And that's both public and private. And so in these four different things, authorities teaching, fellowship, Breaking of bread and a prayer, we have personal application, but we also have corporate application and disciplines here. Now, what happened after all? What happened? They're being devoted to these things. The Holy Spirit is working. What takes place? Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. Another version says there was a sense of awe taking place. Now, I don't know about you, times in your life where you've experienced that sense of awe. I hope and pray that you've experienced that at some point in your life. But some different examples of what that might feel like or look like. I think about creation, what God has given us. Perhaps you've experienced that awe inspiration from being at the beach or in the mountains or seeing a sunrise or sunset or seeing the stars on a very dark night and you're in awe of God and his creation. Perhaps you've experienced in some way the the miraculous, something that has happened that you believe that only God could have done. Maybe God has answered prayers in your life. Answer them in a certain way that only he could have answered and done. The miraculous answered prayer. Maybe you've been to camp or mission trips and you've experienced that kind of spiritual high, right? That we all hear about and talk about, but sometimes that fades. But a lot of times I think it comes because of that awe experience and you're being in community with people in a close-knit community. It's a different kind of experience. Maybe in corporate worship, singing and praising God with other believers, you experience that sense of, of all. There have been times in my life where I've experienced this with groups of people. Even this past fall with the students, we went on a high school retreat 
And the last night we were there, God was working and doing something. And I don't know exactly what brought that about, but God wanted to work and move. And after that last session, we just got together and started sharing our hearts. And there were all of those things that I talked about earlier in the revival. There was confession, there was uh, repentance, there was prayer, there was encouragement. There were many tears that were shed that night. But probably for over two hours, we were sharing everything that God was doing in our lives and we were encouraging each other and lifting each other up. And it was incredible to see and be a part of. Other times I've been a part of things like this. I've seen people come to faith in Jesus, just like we see there in the early church. So here's what I'd say to you in talking about that. To change and to grow, it must be awe-inspired, not guilt-driven. If we want long-term change in our lives, it must be awe-inspired. Guilt-driven change is usually short-term. Now, here's the thing. Experience is important, but they're not everything. We can be awe-inspired by having a good prayer life. We can be awe-inspired by being in God's Word often. I think of the example of my wife when she was in middle school. She went to a camp, and uh, they were encouraged there every morning to read the Bible for half an hour for their personal devotions. And she got so much out of that, that when she got home, she wanted to continue that. But it, it, it extended not only from half an hour to an hour or two hours. And she did that every single day that summer, sometimes for hours on end, being immersed in God's word. And you know what she told me? She said, that was one of the greatest summers of my whole life. So we could be awe-inspired by just reading God's word, by just praying to him and being in fellowship with him. And again, another result of these things happening, taking place, verse 43, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, the amazing thing about this is that that's the same description that it gives about Jesus' ministry. And they're doing exactly what Jesus had left them to do. The same kind of wonders and signs were being done through the apostles that had been done through Jesus. They were fulfilling their mission right there. Now, let's jump back to verse 44 as well. Let's read this again. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds, proceeds as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So you have this encouragement, you have this love, you have this unity, you have this care for one another. Now, some people have taken this passage of scripture and they said, well, that's a great example of socialism. But you see that and you think about, well, what is that exactly? They're not being forced to do this. The government's not telling them to do this. They're doing this out of love for one another. They're doing it to take care of one another. They're doing this willingly. So I would not say it's an example of that at all. But they're attending the temple together as well and eating together in their homes. So not only are they getting together like this, but they're getting together throughout the week. They're taking their meals together. They're being in community with one another. They're doing life together. And they had glad and generous hearts. There was joy that was overflowing in each and every one of them. And not only this, it wasn't just internally focused, right? They had favor in the community. They had favor in the community as well. So I think what we have here, we have a picture of what real authentic Christian community can and should look like. And again, one more result of all of this. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Day by day, those who were being saved. And we get a picture of how many were added over the next year or so. Acts 4.4, 4, we're jumping ahead a little bit. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So you have 120 believers and you have 3,000 
And now, over the course of this period of time, you have 5,000 believers. The church is growing at an exponential rate at this point. Man, that's amazing to see. Now let's jump ahead one more time to Acts 4, 32 through 35. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Does this sound a little bit like the pastors before? And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. Did you hear that? And as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed, distributed to each as any had need. They're not thinking about themselves at all. They're only thinking of one another. So this movement continues on, not just for weeks or months, but for years. We have an amazing example of godly community. And here's the thing I would say to you today. I think most people deep down desperately want that. Love, acceptance, and the presence of God. But let's see ourselves in this culture today. Distractions and busyness and individualism often get in the way of that kind of community. But this is not what we were made for. We were made for this Christian community. But people today, they're seeking to fill their lives today with anything other than what can truly satisfy. We see the problems and issues with identity and today and people living out different narratives and worldviews in ways that they were not created for. And I had to learn a lot from Tim Keller's book on preaching. In the chapter, Preaching the Late Modern Mind, he goes through these five different worldview narratives that we see today and how prevalent they are, and how much they're growing. And I think you'll be able to see many people fit into these categories. Now, there may be some truths found in these, but for the most part, these are found outside of God's way and God's will. So these five worldview narratives today, and, and Tim Keller had help from Charles Taylor and his work, A Secular Age. But these are really important, I think, for us to know. The first one is this, the rationality narrative. It says this, the material world is all that there is. Science and technology will give us the solutions we need in order to live better lives and keep moving forward. So this is when you hear talks about immortality and AI and climate change solutions and space exploration. This worldview is to ensure the survival of the human species. It's completely devoid of God, though. Number two, the history narrative. It's all about progress at every stage, and whatever is new is automatically better. It's a move towards some kind of utopia. Now we see this with secular progressivism and progressive Christianity. I think this is a problem with some of our mainline churches today that are bleeding people. Why? Because they don't look any different than the culture today. Perhaps they still believe in God, but they're caving to the culture. They're showing love without any kind of truth. Number three, the society narrative. The idea of radical individualism and this idea, choice becomes the one sacred value and discrimination, the only moral evil and tolerance is not tolerated. This is where we get the names being called out all the time. Hater, bigot, racist comes from this narrative. This is what we see a lot with the sexual identity movement and certain human rights movements. Now think about this for a second. We've gone from something in the past being objectionable to now acceptable and now celebrated. 
We've gone from things being unthinkable to now unquestionable. It's hard to talk with people without being called names, even if you're doing it in a loving way. Number four, the morality and justice narrative, which has some sort of commitment to social justice, universal benevolence, and or human rights. Yet these are not grounded in God-given ideas, but in moral ideas and norms that we determine for ourselves. We see this in some of the teachings of CRT and extremist groups on both sides of the aisle. We see this with the protests and riots, especially in 2020. They're missing the bigger picture. And number five, the identity narrative. And this one might be the most important for us to know and understand what it means. The idea of the sovereign self. Identity should not come from outside of ourselves, but only inside in our desires and dreams. Emotions and feelings reign. Do you see this in our world today? Some might call this the Disney generation that says, follow your heart, follow your dreams, do what makes you happy. Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, calls this expressive individualism. So identity is a huge issue today. People are asking that question, who am I? And unfortunately, they're, everyone's being told to look within. This uh, past Friday night, so just two nights ago, our young adults were a part of a simulcast called Secret Church. And for six hours, we heard biblical teaching and had prayer time uh, with David Platt. So 50,000 people from all over the States and all over the world were watching this and being a part of it, also praying for the persecuted church. But the theme of that Secret Church was identity. Who am I? And we talked about the Imago Dei uh, in Genesis 1, being made in God's image. We talked about sexuality and race and abortion and genomics and artificial intelligence and social media and the metaverse. And how do we view these things from a biblical perspective? And obviously the Bible speaks to some of these, but not all of these. And so how do you have biblical wisdom to answer some of these, um, even though the Bible doesn't directly deal with some of these things that we're dealing with here in our culture today? So this is a big deal, identity. Our young people are so confused about who they are and what they're supposed to do or become. Derek Thompson has written a book recently, Dealing with this question, why are teens so sad today? And in this book, he showed his sobering findings. That 12 years ago, 26% of teens expressed that they were sad, kind of on a continual basis. But now in 2022, that number has jumped to 44% of teenagers are continually sad. They're anxious, they're depressed, they don't know what to do. Why is that? Why are people so sad? Why are one in two teens today sad about their lives? Well, perhaps it's because they have 24-7 access to doom and gloom on the internet. They're constantly playing the comparison game on social media. They have been told to look within in order to find out who they are, but our hearts deceive us. No wonder so many young people are sad and confused today. We've disembodied young people's sense of identity today from anything other than oneself. They need to look outside of themselves to something bigger. John Stone Street and his Breakpoint podcast, which I would highly recommend, and John was uh, one of my professors in college and got to learn Christian worldview uh, from him. They were recently talking about this issue of identity and sadness, and he deals a lot with these issues, especially with young people and the way the world is going today. But he was referencing another podcast that was talking about the sadness in our young people. And the interesting thing that was said by 
some unbelievers discussing this, they actually said, our young people, they need something more today. They need something like church. Because we've lost all sense of community in our world today. We're isolated. We've become so individualistic. And now we even have unbelievers saying we need church. Now, obviously, they're probably not thinking in the sense of what we're talking about, hearing from God's word and the preaching of the gospel. But perhaps they're thinking of that community. They're thinking thinking of things outside of themselves, something bigger than themselves. And so it's just fascinating to hear people are desperate to find something different for the young people in our world today. So as we've been kind of veering off and talking about identity and how important that is, we need to bring it back to the book of Acts and that sense of community and how important that community can be in each of our lives. So as we wrap up with the book of Acts, this movement continued on for four to five years until persecution scattered them, right? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. Uh, Saul, who became Paul, was a part of that. And they are dispersed. So that diaspora takes place among the Christians. And they go to the ends of the earth and they share the gospel. They had a good thing going, but this was not God's long-term plan. The Great Commission was. Now the 12 disciples, they went out and they shared to the ends of the known world. And early church missions continued for a time, but unfortunately, the church over the next several hundred years, thousand years or so, became internally focused. It became more about ceremonies and rituals and traditions and those types of things. There was need for reform in the church. So God used Martin Luther to bring about the Protestant Reformation getting back to the gospel, being saved by grace through faith, getting the word of God in people's hands, talking about missions once again. And then a few hundred years later, 1800s became the great century of missions. And God used that in order for the Great Commission to go out once again. In the late 1800s, God used young people once again. Something called the student volunteer movement. I wrote a paper on this. It was just fascinating to see. There were A hundred men, some of these were connected to Moody Bible Institute, but they got back to the basics of the Great Commission, what God wanted them to do. This happened from 1886 to the 1920s. And during this time, thousands of young people surrendered all or part of their lives to the foreign mission field in hopes of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you think about it for a minute, many revivals and movements of God have been started through young people. Through the generations that sometimes are looked down on by older people. We want to look to them for an example, to be an example to the rest of us. So what do we do with all of this? How do we apply this further to our lives? How can we be like the early church in some ways? Well, number one, we obviously, we need the Holy Spirit of God. We need the Holy Spirit of God. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. So when you're having conversations with your children or students or young people today, if God is working and moving in them, even calling them to do hard things or challenging things or at times risky things, don't quench the spirit in that. Ask them good questions. Give them wisdom in that. Give them counsel, but do not quench the spirit in their lives. We need the Holy Spirit of God. Again, we must be devoted to the authorities, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayers. That's something that we should all be doing, finding ways to do. If, if there's some of these that are lacking in your life, perhaps you need to find a way to live some of these out. Number three, we need to take care of and look out for one another. Take care of and look out for one another. Now think about this. Christian community, our spiritual family, I believe, goes deeper than blood. 
Now, God has given us our families, right? Our blood family that we live and we experience life with, and he's blessed us with that. But don't forget that people in here were brothers and sisters in Christ, and that lasts forever. We know that. So take care of and look out for one another. Number four, embody the gospel. Embody the gospel. Be a disciple who makes disciples. We have some intergenerational connections here taking place, but I want to see more of that in our church. We've been talking about discipleship a lot more the last couple of years, and we have many people involved in this in different ways. But as a reminder, a disciple is a believer who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others to follow him as well. Are you doing that? Are you living that out? And number five, bring more in, bring more in. Verse 47 again, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Wouldn't that be amazing to see God bring people to faith here every single week? But here's the thing today, people are distracted and confused and lost. There's no fixed reference point for people in our culture today. Life for many is devoid of any meaning or purpose But Jesus coming back to him in the last supper, right after he washed his disciples feet, God in the, you know, God in the flesh, he's there. He's serving these men. He said a new commandment. I give you to love one another. And in John 13, 35, get this. If uh, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, all people, not just other believers, but all people know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. So is there a need for you in this room today to be revived? Do you need to be shocked back to life? If you want to see revival take place here and in our community, let me ask you, are you praying for that? Are you praying for revival? And we don't just pray for revival to get revival. We pray for revival to get God because he is who we need. There have been some young adults that have, been talking about bringing back the weekly prayer meeting that we used to have here at Edgewood. There's a stirring going on in the hearts of our people that want this. So we'll keep you posted on that, the things that we're going to start perhaps as a result of this. But we want to see that more prayer taking place and more asking of God to bring about revival, not only in our own hearts and for our church, but for our society as well. So are you feeling apathetic today or experiencing some kind of spiritual sleep or slumber? I would encourage you to look to the scriptures. One final verse, Ephesians 5, 13 and 14, Paul helps us. And he says this, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Does the light of Christ need to expose some of us in here today? Do some of us need to rid ourselves of different distractions in our lives in order to see God more clearly? Perhaps you may need some silence and solitude in your life. Turn the phone off for a while or get off social media. Perhaps some fasting and praying is needed in your life. Now I want us to close today is for us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you're willing to open your hands, And ask this question, God, what do you want from me right now? Not the person next to me, not someone else in this room. What do you want from me right now? Perhaps there are people who are here today who aren't saved, who don't have a relationship with God. That's your first step. 
Maybe some of us need to be, recommit our lives to Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of us need to start praying for revival and our lives and, and the church. God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this holy moment, Lord, as we consider the things in our lives, Lord, that perhaps we need to rid ourselves of. Perhaps there's things that we need to stop doing. Perhaps there's things we need to start doing. Lord, I pray that um, we would all get rid of the things in our lives right now, Lord, that are holding us back. Lord, I pray that you would work and move here. You would speak in ways that only you can. Lord, we just thank you for this time to remember, to commemorate, Lord, your death, burial, and resurrection. In your name we pray, amen.